Uh, would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 4? We're continuing our studies as we work through this very important epistle in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 4, and we come to verse 14. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or shall I come in love, in a spirit of gentleness? Amen. I mean, God will always bless the reading of His own inspired Word. In 1 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4, Paul employs various metaphors to describe the Christian minister, the minister of the gospel. He calls him a servant, a farmer, a builder, a galley slave, and a steward. In this last section of 1 Corinthians 4, he likens the servant of God to a father in his family. You'll notice the abrupt change in tone from the verses that we considered in our previous study uh, to that which we're looking at today. The strong words of sarcasm and rebuke where Paul seeks to puncture their pride is replaced uh, with soothing tones of a father reasoning with his erring children. Verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He sees himself in a father-child relationship with the Corinthians. Now, many people are troubled by this passage because they remember the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew where he says, "'And call no man your father on earth, for you have one Father who is in heaven.'" Jesus, of course, is rebuking the tendency of the Pharisees to look for honors and acclamations from men, even to the point where they were disrupting the place of God and robbing God of His glory. But Paul isn't elevating himself here or giving himself a title. He is employing metaphor to highlight his relationship with the Corinthians, just as in the way he speaks of himself as a servant, as a farmer, galley slave, and a builder, he now speaks of himself as a father among his children. It's a, it's a metaphor. It's an illustration, not a title. And I want you to notice three things this morning, the marks of a spiritual father. Notice, first of all, he enjoys a unique relationship with his children. He is a faithful teacher of his children, and he exercises discipline over his children. Now, before we look at these points, I feel it necessary just to say that it went comes to this concept of a father, we have got to think biblically rather than personally. The whole concept of fatherhood has been greatly eroded in our day and generation. Some have grown up with absent fathers. They know nothing or little of a father's role within the family and the father's loyalty to his family. 
Some have grown up where they, their fathers were harsh and hard, the very essence of meanness and selfishness. And all they can think of when they think of a father is a clenched fist, a furrowed brow, and uh, harsh tones. Others have had overindulgent and unprincipled fathers who wouldn't say boo to a goose and could be manipulated so that you could wrap them around your little finger and get them to pander to whatever you wanted. There was no correction, there was no admonition, there was no discipline whatsoever in that house. So, we've got to set all that aside and think of how the Bible defines the role of a father in his family. So, the first thing, a father enjoys a unique relationship with his children. In verses 14 and 15, Paul emphasizes the uniqueness of his relationship to the Corinthians. He tells them that there are three things that describe his relationship to the Corinthians. First of all, as a father, he fathers children. Look at verse 15. He says in verse 15, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. It was through the ministry of the apostle Paul that these Corinthians had been converted and brought to faith in Christ. Remember, Paul arrived in Corinth in much fear and trembling, but he stayed and labored 18 months, seeing many of them converted and the church established. Now, Paul is not claiming here to be the author of their salvation, but rather the agent in their salvation. Such a thought would have been anathema to a man who had such a high view and deep appreciation of the grace of God. He says, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel, that the source of their salvation was Christ Jesus, and it came to them by means of the gospel, the gospel that Paul preached. So, through the gospel that he preached, they were brought to Christ, and it was Christ who saved them. And it was through the ministry of Paul that that happened. It was he who presented the glorious gospel to them and led them to faith in Christ. As he said back in chapter 3, he planted the seed, but God made it grow. Now, that placed Paul in a very unique relationship with the Corinthians. He says there in verse 15, for though you have many or countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. The NIV says 10,000 guardians. The authorized version says instructors. Now, when we read of guides, don't think of a travel guide or a tour guide. The, the guide that's being referred to here was a slave in a Roman house who had special responsibility not to tutor the children, but to mentor the children. So, he would be there to accompany them to school, to teach them morals and manners, to exercise influence over them, to help them with their homework. But when the child became 16 or 17, the services of that slave were dispensed with. Paul says, you have many people like that. The ESV says, countless people. The NIV rightly translates it, 10,000 like that. That's a euphemism for saying, you know, equivalent to our dime a dozen. You had, you had plenty of people who exercised influence over you like that, but he says, you only had one father. 
See, the very definition of a father is that he has children and that he's in a unique relationship with them. And Paul says, I am your father. And of course, you can't be a spiritual father without the gospel because the gospel is the means by which we are adopted into the family of God. So the true servant of God, the true spiritual father, is one who teaches and preaches the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is distinguished by his gospel preaching. He is known as a preacher of the gospel where he calls men and women and young people to repentance and faith and points them to the source of salvation to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And Paul was a spiritual father to many. He addresses the Galatians not only as brothers, but as his children. Look at verse 17 there in the passage that we read. That is why I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Timothy had come to faith through the apostle Paul. He writes to Philemon and says in verse 10, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son, my son, while I was in chains. Can you imagine it? Here is Paul, uh, restricted, incarcerated, limited in his activity, and he's still bearing spiritual children. And of course, then what is true of the minister ought to be true of every Christian. He is a spiritual father or a spiritual mother. That may mean his own family, but he has a responsibility to take the gospel into all the world to make spiritual children. I remember Sam and Mary Sloan, who were missionaries in Peru, and when they retired, they came to the Balamani church, and they didn't have any family. And I asked her once about it, and she said, well, she says, I don't have any physical children, but I have hundreds of spiritual children. And uh, when we went to Peru, all these men now in their 30s and their wives were all called Sam and Mary because they had come to faith through Sam and Mary. Have you any spiritual children? Have you ever led anybody to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? There's no, no greater blessing, no greater privilege than to beget spiritual children, to beget spiritual children, to be the instrument that God uses to bring somebody else to faith in Christ. I was visiting Val and Eileen this week, and uh, he reminded me of a statement by uh, Amy Carmichael. He said, you know, you don't have to be the first link in the chain, and you don't have to be the last link in the chain. The important thing is that you are a link in the chain. Are you a link in the chain? So that's the first thing then. He fathers his children. Secondly, he loves his children. Go back to verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, to admonish you as my beloved children. As my beloved children. That word beloved is the verb form 
of the Greek word agape, which is the highest expression and form of love. You know, there are a number of different words in the Greek language to describe love. One teleo is to have a, a desire for, so I long to the, go there, or I, I would like an ice cream. Not, I'd love an ice cream. There's a particular word for that kind of desire. One refers to the intimacy between a man and a woman. And so, if you go to Piccadilly Circus, you have a, that statue, Eros, erected to the Greek god of love. And that's the word that's used then to describe the sexual intimacy between a man and a woman. The third word is filio, which means friendship, a brotherly love, the love that existed between David and Jonathan, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And then there is this agape love, this highest and greatest and purest kind of love. It is the love that God has for His Son. It's the love that God has for sinners. It's the love that Christ has for His church. It's the love that Christians ought to have for each other. It's much more than a brotherly love. By its very definition, it is a sacrificial love. John MacArthur defines it like this. It is a love that is determined and willful, having the one purpose of serving the object of that love. The very nature of this agape love is to spread its feet at the feet of another. And that's the kind of love that a father has for his children. He loves them in a way that he loves nobody else. They are his children. He would give up everything. He would do anything for them. Well, that was Paul's love to these Corinthians. He loved them as a father loves with this agape love his children. Just turn over with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 14. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 14, here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. His love to the Corinthians was an unrequited love. It was an unresponsive love. He says, I don't want things from you. I, I want you. I want your affection. And then he adds, for children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. You know, when we go out for coffee with the boys or lunch with the boys, do you know who pays? Always, always who pays? Dad. Dad. And they're all working now, but it's still Dad who pays because that's the right thing to do. Because that's what dads do. They express their love in self-sacrifice. And that's what Paul is saying here. He loved the Corinthians. He was prepared to do anything and to give up everything for them, just as a father would his children. You know, in 1 Corinthians 13, you have that wonderful definition of love, where love is described not as a feeling, but in 17 verbs. And uh, it's often read at weddings, but, you know, it, it's primary purpose is, is to regulate a disruptive and difficult church. I'm going to read it from J.B. Phillips' translation, which I particularly like. This love of which I speak is slow to lose patience. It looks for a way of being constructive. It is not possessive. It is neither anxious to impress, nor does it cherish inflated ideas of its own importance. Love has good manners and does not pursue selfish advantage. It is not touchy. 
How many touchy Christians do you get in church? It is not touching. It does not keep an account of evil or gloat over the wickedness of other people. On the contrary, it is glad with all good men when truth prevails. Love knows no limit to its endurance, no end to its trust, no fading of its hope. It can outlast anything. It is, in fact, the one thing that still stands when all else has fallen. So then as a spiritual father, he has children, he loves his children, sacrifices for them, and he is continually concerned about his children. Look at verse 14 again. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. I remember when Andrew was born, going to the hospital, you know, to pick him up in the little carrier seat, you know, and putting him in the car and strapping him in the car and then getting into the car and just being overwhelmed by a great sense of responsibility. I'm sure others have had that experience. And then driving off and going extra slow and realizing that this is what it's going to be like for the next 18 years. No, no, no. Not 18 years. They're in their 30s now, and I'm still worried about them. I'm still phoning up the check that they got in in time, and they're all tucked up in bed safely at a reasonable hour. You never, you never stop worrying about your children. And that's the kind of relationship Paul had with the Corinthians. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you. Present tense, present tense. And that word admonish carries passion and feeling and desire within it. Paul had left the church in Corinth four years previously, four years previously. He's still concerned about them. He's still burdened with them. They were his children, and he never gave up. Even though they were removed from him, he never gave up thinking about them. So he enjoys a unique relationship with his children. Secondly, A spiritual father is a faithful teacher of his children. One of the most critical responsibilities that a father is entrusted with is teaching his children. So in Deuteronomy 6, you have that, what's known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then Moses goes on, or the Lord goes on and says, impress them upon your children. Talk about these truths when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols to your hands that these these things will govern your behavior. Tie them to your heads that this, this truth has to inculcate the mind and to the doorposts of your house so that even in the house, in a Jewish house, these things are there and taught to the children. The Word of God, the law of God is to be taught to the next generation. And so Paul then writing to the Ephesians tells fathers not to exasperate their children, that's a real danger, not to exasperate their children, but to bring them up in the fear and instruction of the Lord. There is this responsibility placed upon fathers, fathers particularly, I have to say, to teach and instruct their children in the things of God. Christian fathers are to be distinguished by their instruction. Now, that's the thought that Paul picks up in verses 16 and 17 and applies them to himself as a spiritual father, as a spiritual leader, he teaches his spiritual children. Now, he does this by 
in two ways, by example and by instruction. Look at verses 16. I urge you then to be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Teaching by example. He says, I wrote to you then to be imitators of me. The authorized version says, be followers of me. The Greek word literally means mimic. Mimic me, he says. Here Paul is teaching on one of the most disturbing truths in all of the world that children learn by example, that children learn not only by instruction but also by example, that in teaching our children it's not enough to say, do as I say, but we need to be able to say, do as I do. From the moment they arrive on the scene, they mimic their parents. They learn how to speak. They learn how to behave. They learn how to walk, that children not only reflect their parents and looks, but emotionally, spiritually, and morally as well. That's terribly sobering to parents. You ever had the experience that your child exhibits some unacceptable behavior, and you realize that they got it from you? Or you tell them off for something, and your husband or wife says, but you do that. It's not always good to hear people say he's just like his father. I often hear people saying, you know, the boys, they, they, they preach just like you. Are they just like you? I don't want them to be like me. I want them to be better than me. I want them to be better than me. It's, it's sobering to think that they learn from you. But Paul, speaking of spiritual children, says, mimic me. Would you ever say that? to your own children, or to anyone. Some people have great problems with what Paul says here. We're not to uh, mimic Paul. They say we are to mimic Christ. But remember, Paul is writing under the inspiration of the uh, Holy Spirit, and he does say in 1 Corinthians 11, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ, that Paul consciously lived his life in such conformity to the will of Christ and to the person of Christ, he could say, imitate me. Isn't that a staggering statement? Could you say that? Could I say that? We want to say, don't imitate me, Imitate Christ. We want to say, as the bumper sticker says in America, don't follow me, follow Christ. But children, natural and spiritual, learn by example. What example, then, are you setting to others? What example are you setting to your children so you have a bit of a sniffle and you don't come to church? What does that say to your children? Well, church isn't really that important or uh, you never go to the prayer meeting, what are you saying to your children? That prayer isn't really that important. That's what you're saying. That's what you're communicating. Do your children ever see you pray? Do they ever hear you pray? If you complain and criticize the church over Sunday lunch, about the little boy who… Um, the minister says, I'm coming to your house for um, Sunday lunch. Do you know what we're having? And he says, goat. Goat, he says. Yeah, he says, my mother says we're having that old goat on Sunday. But, um, well, 
What do you expect then from your children? We always try to make church the highlight of the week. We're going to worship God. We're going to be in the presence of God. We're going to hear the Word of God. We're going to meet with the family of God. This is the best thing, the highest point in our lives. D.L. Moody said that the, the only Bible the unbeliever reads is, is the one that's wrapped in shoe leather. What do they read in you? Do they see a love of God, a desire for God, a desire for holiness? We teach by example, but we also... Spiritual father teaches by instruction. Look at verse 17. He says, that is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. It is the job of every father not only to set an example, but also to give instruction. In the case of the Corinthian church, Paul had taught them thoroughly for 18 months but as every pastor knows, you can teach for years on subjects, and yet so little actually penetrates the mind and the heart of those that are under your care. So Paul was sending Timothy to remind them not only of his way of life, but what he taught and what he taught in every church. So there was a body of doctrine that was definable and recognizable as orthodoxy. And that doctrine that he had systematized in his mind, he taught in every church. It was the truth that was once delivered to the saints. And so Paul was sending Timothy to Corinth, recognizing the Corinthians needed more personal instruction, because it is by the Word of God that you grow and mature in your faith, and the Corinthians were acting like desperately immature children. They needed to be taught and reminded of what Paul had previously taught them. It's the devil's intention, Paul tells us, to toss us about with every wind of doctrine and the cunningness and craftiness of men. And if that, that is so, that that's his stated intention, then it's so important that we know our doctrine and we're rooted in doctrine and we're grounded in doctrine. I was visiting a church uh, not so long ago, and uh, it was a vacant church, and they were looking for a new pastor, and they said um, they had a good teacher previously, and they said, you know, we don't want a teacher. We don't want a teacher. We want a the pastor, they said. They want somebody to pastor the church. But the word pastor is shepherd. And what is the primary function of a shepherd? The primary function of a shepherd is to feed, to lead the sheep to green pastures and still waters, to teach the Word of God. You remember Peter at his restoration in John 21, he says, the Lord says to him, do you love me? He says, I do. He says, feed my sheep. And then the second time, he says, pastor my sheep. And then the third time, he says, feed my sheep. Now, that's the function. That's how a pastor builds up a church and strengthens people uh, in their faith by giving them the Word of God, by feeding them the Word of God. It's the marks of a spiritual father. He teaches the Word of God. Do you remember how Paul, in the most solemn of terms, says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. What's coming? What's coming? In this dramatic charge, he says, preach the Word. That's to be central to your ministry because that's how the people of God are built up. 
So he enjoys a unique relationship with his children. He is a faithful teacher to his children. And very quickly, he exercises discipline over his children. Look at verses 18 to the end, to 21. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Being a spiritual father carries a great responsibility. Not only does it demand teaching, but also discipline. There are times when spiritual fathers, just like ordinary fathers, need to rebuke, to admonish, and discipline their children. Indeed, the Bible would tell us that if a father is failing to discipline his children, he is failing his children. Proverbs 13, 24, he who spares his son hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. And the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 12 and verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons, for what son is not disciplined by his father? Susanna Wesley, who had 17 children, two of whom were John and Charles Wesley, wrote this. She says, the parent who studies to discipline his child works together with God in the renewing and saving of his soul. The parent who indulges a child does the devil's work, making religion impracticable and salvation unattainable, and does all in him to damn his soul forever. Children need boundaries. Children need discipline. The Bible expects parents to discipline their children, not in an explosive, reactionary, bad-tempered kind of way, but loving, measured, appropriate. I remember somebody coming to me, and they had a really rebellious 14-year-old who was giving them great concern and causing them great grief and breaking their hearts. And they said to me, um, you know, could you tell us how to discipline them? And I said, well, it's really too late. You've left it too late. We did discipline the boys when they were young, but we didn't discipline them very often because once the boundaries were established, you didn't have to keep going back and punishing them. They reached the point where they understood that no means no. And what Paul is saying is that these people were pumped up with pride. That's what the word arrogant means in verse 19. They were pumped up with pride and that he was coming to them to correct them, to discipline them. He wouldn't let that behavior go unchallenged. He was not interested in their talk, but their walk was the power of the gospel being manifested in their lives. They were imitating the philosophers around them with highfalutin speeches and empty talk, entering into needless and pointless discussions. That's not what the gospel's about, says Paul. It's about the power to change and transform your life, to bring you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, that you might grow and develop and change as a Christian. And so he says in verse 21, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love with a spirit of gentleness? Now, one of the hardest things I find as a pastor, and I, I, I hate it, I hate it, 
and I hate it with a passion, is having to confront anybody about anything. I really, I hate it. And I, I would recoil and I would look for any other excuse other than doing what the Bible calls me to do. Because a faithful father should be prepared to exercise the discipline to call out sin and to say that's wrong. That's the mark of a spiritual father. I don't like it. I hate it. But I hope you're grateful that you belong to a church that will not allow sin to go unchecked. I hope you're grateful for that. That you have spiritual fathers who are prepared to exercise discipline, to challenge unacceptable behavior. Everybody needs a church like that. You need to belong to a church that will call sin, sin, and call out misbehavior. A faithful, spiritual father is prepared to use the rod. Now, I don't think he means a literal rod there in verse 21. I think he means the rod of the Word of God, because the Word of God is that which corrects us and trains us in righteousness. But Paul is saying to them, look, look, are you going to repent so that when I come to you, I can come to you with a, in a spirit of gentleness rather than with the spirit of correction that comes from the Word of God? So, here's the mark of a spiritual father that uh, he enjoys a unique relationship with his children. He begets them. He loves them. He's always concerned about them. He is a faithful teacher of his children by example and by instruction, and he does dare to discipline. He does exercise discipline over his children. And what Paul has said here uh, about himself and his role as a spiritual father applies to all of us uh, as well in how we bring up our children. You know, Gloria Furman has that book, Missional Motherhood, directed to, to women, that women have this great responsibility to, to nurture and to, to uh, present and confront their children with the gospel, the gospel claims of, of Christ. Um, what a responsibility that is, not just for fathers, but for mothers and for all who live in an unbelieving world. Amen.